Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, hello. You are the second most important Alex on this podcast today. Oh my God, roasting me right out of the gate. Hey, buddy. It's a, it's okay. I feel all right about that. What a gift to do this podcast today with you on a day that we have discovered that our friend Alex Rodriguez, over a week ago, did a YouTube video titled Three Ways That Pitchers Tip Pitches. We've made it. We did it. We absolutely did. This, this is, is clearly in response to our podcast existing. <laughs> Honestly, A-Rod, come on and talk about tipping pitches on tipping pitches. That's We'll retire after that. Still one of the funnier moments of our friendship and the existence of this podcast was when I said to you that it was very fortunate that we were called tipping pitches now that the Astros had this scandal and tipping pitches was in the news, especially since tipping pitches doesn't mean anything for our podcast. And you turned to me and you were like, what do you mean tipping pitches doesn't mean something? I always thought of it like tipping pitches. You know what you're going to (laughs) get. And I was like, didn't put two and two together. I wonder if if there are any listeners out there, just generally, if there is anyone listening. If if there are any listeners just who happen to be out there. Who thought about tipping pitches and thought, I know what that means. I understand why they're called that. Please let us know. <laughs> For what it's worth, I, I I don't think we came up with that name with that in mind. Uh, it was kind of one of Definitely came up you, with it because it sounded cool. You, you work backwards from there. Well, let's figure out a meaning for this. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are going to talk about Alex Rodriguez and tipping pitches. We are going to talk about Rob Manfred saying that the league was never going to play more than 60 games. And we are going to talk to ESPN staff writer June Lee about his piece about Ivy League infiltration in baseball front offices. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Basley. And you are listening to Alex Rodriguez's favorite podcast, Tipping Pitches. Are you ready to rock? I want to talk about uh, three players that I learned a great deal from. One, Ken Griffey Jr., uh, my teammate in Seattle. Deep to right field! Oh, baby! Put it on the scoreboard, the kid has done it again! The other one is Derek Jeter, I Hall knew of Famer, it was my Derek teammate Jeter. with the Yankees. Nobody on. Jeter hits it into right. And another Hall of Famer in Chipper Jones, who I played in 2008 for the U.S. Olympic team when we represented uh, the USA. These three guys had one thing in common, and I'm really, really sure that it helped them in their trajectory to having this Hall of Fame careers. Uh, All three of them, during the game, they watched the game for nine innings. Now they may that's it. In there to the that's all it takes to become a Hall of Famer. They, just they to watch the, the game. game. Right Alex, that, was, that, was the, that was the one thing they all had in common. That was the only thing. If you wanted to talk to Chipper Jones, 
you talk to him before the game or after the game. But for those nine innings, he sat in the corner and he watched that pitcher looking for anything that can help him. And for you youngsters out there, when you go into the video room, you know what you're thinking about? The past. And you're thinking about the future. What you're not thinking about is the moment. And the present is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Now, when, <laughs> when you're- we did, he just picture, did he just come up with that? To look for? I'm gonna give you that was a Kanye lyric, but- <laughs> One of the things that I really love about his videos is that it'd be like three ways that pitchers tip pitches, but then he'll also give like sub lists of like any number, you know, like he just gave four things that yeah. you should do. I, like it wasn't even, he just speaks in lists. Yeah, it was, it, the list was one, the past, two, the future, three, the moment, four, the present is a gift. Just like <laughs> Total's dream of consciousness, like one, B, that three, tip pitches all the time. But the only way you can pick up on these signals is if you're paying attention. If you're still stuck in your last at bat, studying and watching and in your head, then you're not gonna be able to prepare for what's coming next. So let me show you three ways that pitchers tip pitches as a hitter. These are the three things that will See, he's for. having a hard time saying it too, I'm just like us. With the glove. <laughs> I'm gonna show you something with the hands and the tempo. That's also and the last, glove. I'm gonna show the you- The glove is on the hands. With the ball. Let's start with the glove. The ball's so in the, the hands. Glove, hit, <laughs> and you see a pitcher squeeze. See, that was another list. You see this squeeze. A lot of times that would be a fastball. Just a lot of times. Not all the time, <laughs> just a lot of times. <laughs> okay. Now, if you see the glove open like that, open like that, that sometimes is sometimes. a changeup. Sometimes, as a hitter, you're able to pick that up. That's one way. Mm -hmm. When they're from the stretch, what you find a lot of pitchers do is they're looking at you, and when they're throwing a fastball, they're a lot more deliberate. Why? Because they're loading up, and they need that power. What a lot of pitchers do when it comes to throwing a breaking ball, meaning a curveball, a slider, or a changeup, they'll speed up. Are these rules universal? You can see like, a right <laughs> a fastball, be a lot he's using a lot of qualifying phrases like a lot of times. Yes. You know, sometimes yeah. pitchers will open their gloves wider for a changeup. Like, can I just go up to the plate and just bank on that, A-Rod? Like, or am I just going to get blown away with a fastball if I think that his pitcher's glove is wider than usual, which I don't know what usual is. <laughs> What I'm really interested in is, uh, are we going to get more of uh, Griffey and Jeter and Jones in this video? Because he listed the three of them up top and was like, I'm going to teach you what I learned from these three guys. And I thought those were going to be the three ways in this video. Yeah, like one but thing like, from each guy. But so yeah. far, we've only heard from A-Rod. Like, he just <laughs> named the three players he played with. Once again, A-Rod, lover of lists right and here. name drops. And they're trying to speed you up to go soft and keep you off balance. Jen, you'll like this one. This is the difference <laughs> when you're able to see the white ball. Now, hold on. Jen, what? you'll like this one. Is she there? Is she holding the camera? Is she filming? Yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> She's not holding the camera. No, there's no, this no. video has to have cost over $10,000 to produce. <laughs> Absolutely. I love his outfits, by the way. It's very simple businessman. I'm not being sarcastic here. I actually, I would dress like that. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, it's total corporate, like 
cool CEO, you know, yeah. like feet up on the desk. Like, yeah, you can come talk to me about anything as long as it's not about unionizing. <laughs> 50-50 rev split Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> uh, this looks like how you and I dressed when we went to career fairs because like we didn't want to put on tie. Yeah, exactly. We were like, oh, we're going to be cool. They're going to, and they're going to notice that we're yeah. cool. Like, we don't care a little Deadspin's bit. Deadspin's going to offer me edgy. a column today <laughs> on the eighth floor of the Arthur L. Carter School for Journalism. Because I'm wearing a sweater over a shirt and no tie and black jeans. Now, this is the one that I love the most. There's so many pitchers did this. And I had so many home runs in my career by just pitchers giving tips, right? But you have to watch. So youngsters, get on that bench and pay attention. You don't need to be. Talking. I love the you concept that you love. This is the one that I love the most. The one way that pitchers tip their pitches that I love the most. Like you've never yeah. thought about anything else in your life. Then, if you have ranked lists of how you enjoy pitchers tipping their pitches, I love I mean, baseball yeah. as much as the next guy, probably more than the next guy, and I don't give a shit about how pitchers tip their pitches. <laughs> like my number one way is probably when they do the double clutch, the double clutch. Do you think that's what he's going to say here? We'll find out. I honestly, I hope so. I mean, he ranks everything, obviously, right? I mean, number one for him is the past. Number two is the future. <laughs> number four is the present. <laughs> Letter D is the present. Need to be talking. You certainly don't need to be in the video room. I almost wish that Major League Baseball got rid of the video during the games so people can actually focus on the moment. So this is the best one here. If he says the double clutch thing, I'm going to freak out. If you're seeing a fastball, you're going to see a lot of white. So now I'm going to try it. You tell me if it's a fastball. Fastball, you're going to see white. Change up, you're going to see all hands, okay? Now I'm doing it in slow motion, but I'm going to now do it in real speed, and you tell me if you're able to pick this up. It's going to be subtle, but if you're paying attention, you'll be able to pick this up. He is so bored. Oh, my God. <laughs> this man has nothing to do with his life. And if you slow it down and you watch enough, 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 you'll sit there on the bench and you're pretending you're in the batter's box and you start calling it out. There's body language. There's an energy to a game that if you stick yourself in, in the middle of that energy, as an athlete, you'll have a competitive advantage. The minute you go into the video oh, room, stick yourself in the energy, you're basically man. cutting the zone away from you. Because the zone lives in the moment. And the minute you go back <laughs> or you look forward, you're staying away from the moment. Those are my three tips on pitchers. What were the three tips? Tipping pitches. Oh, he uh, said it. Week, he said the words. I'll come back with three tips, this time for hitting. So we'll see you next week. See ya. <laughs> The okay, zone wait, wait. lives in the moment, Bobby. The zone, it always lives in the moment. It does live in the moment. You can't deny that. I want to ask you, Alex Baisley. Now, okay. you've once again resumed the role of most important Alex on the podcast. Congratulations. You. you have that Appreciate crown that. back. What were the three tips? It was... Pop quiz. It was the, the way that the glove is held, right? If it's a fastball, then the, the glove is slightly more closed. If it's a changeup, it's slightly more open. Is that two tips or was that only one? I think that was I think that was I think that was technically one, but obviously within every tip is a is a list of sub tips. Um, there he was the showing. Life, he lives his life one Microsoft Word doc outline at a time. Do you, you know, think it's he like, has his kids. It's like Roman ranked? numeral one. Yeah, probably Roman numeral one. Letter A. Roman numeral two. Number one. And then there's like the star asterisk. 
level once you get like seven steps in on the on the dock. Yeah, my guy gro- goes grocery shopping and separates things out by like meal or like mm-hmm. like one. Breakfast. I think he does his own grocery shopping. Absolutely not. Okay, what's tip number two? Tip number two, I believe, was the the showing of the baseball. And remember, if it's a fastball, you'll see all white. And if it's a changeup, you'll see all hand. He only showed the normal changeup grip. What if it's a circle change? You'll still see all white. But okay. What's yeah. tip number three? I'm not going to lie. I, I don't. Re- he kind of lost me on that one. <laughs> Something about like, don't talk and everyone's going to be talking to you. So don't go to the video room because the zone. Remember, the zone lives in the moment and you and you, you want to. I don't actually know if you want to be in the moment or not. That seems like a good idea, but he was sitting there being, I, I mean, remember the present is a gift, um, which is why it's called the moment in the zone. So the zone is in the moment is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Like if this is, <laughs> if this is some like performance art, he's doing a good job. Absolutely. I think that the glove thing was two separate tips. I, I'm not going to lie. We'll have to go back and review the tape. But yeah. most importantly from all of this is Alex Rodriguez said tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. That really is. Okay, real quick. Who, who gave him which tip, though? That's a great question. I think the zone is in the moment. Was it the moment is in the zone? I think it's the moment no, is in the zone. I think you're switching. No, I, think it's, I think it's the zone is in the moment, I believe. Be- he said you don't want to go and watch video because you take yourself out of the zone. And remember... The zone is in the moment. But also, at the beginning of the video, he said that the moment isn't what you want to be thinking about. So, or maybe it, I actually, I don't know. No, no, no. He said you have to be in the moment, like Chipper oh, okay. Jones. So, you, you don't so want to be thinking about the, the past. The zone is or in the, the moment was clearly from Chipper Jones. You don't want to be thinking about the past or the future, obviously. Have you ever played baseball right. before? Come on. <laughs> Derek Cheater must have given him the white tip, the, the ball, the hand situation. Fastball is white. Change up his hand. Didn't say anything about curveball, by the way. But we already yeah. solved that problem in tip number one, which we now know must come from Ken Griffey Jr. That you have to look how wide the glove is. Oh, I remember the third tip just now. Oh. <laughs> the speed. Don't you remember the tip? That, oh, that, that part in the middle where he right. said the speed of the pitcher as he sets up to throw a fastball or a breaking ball. He's going to go slower for the fastball sometimes. Important caveat there. Sometimes that's, this is going to be right. the case. Yes. Yeah. Because he's really gearing up to throw harder. That was that, his explanation. Was that his favorite one? Or was it the, was no, it the, the favorite one was showing the, of the baseball? Showing of the baseball. Okay. I learned so much. I'm sad he didn't do the double clutch thing. I would have been really happy about that. Yeah, I know. That's we, my maybe, favorite way to tip my pitches. Does Alex Rodriguez have a cameo account? I want to get Alex Rodriguez to do a cameo and just do SpawnCon for us. That video was SpawnCon for us. <laughs> Tipping pitches. It's hurting our SEO, though. I'm not going to lie. We're, we're cutting the, the 10 seconds of that video and just posting it to our uh, Twitter channel. Like He recorded that specifically for us. I hope you know that. I have a question for you. Okay. And I've asked you this question about Bernie Sanders in the past. Okay. I'm going to ask you this question now about Alex Rodriguez. If you had to bet your life, like you will die tomorrow if you answer this question wrong, will Alex Rodriguez ever hear any amount of our podcast? Any, even five seconds? This dude 
spent a not insignificant amount of time standing in his backyard pretending that he was a pitcher. With his wife, Jennifer Lopez, filming him. Filming him, right, exactly. And spent thousands of dollars to produce this video. He is so bored all the time, he 100% is going to hear even just a few seconds of tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. Absolutely. I'm with you. I was not with you on the Bernie Sanders one, but I'm with you on this one. That's fair. I think I think the the chances are much higher that Alex Rodriguez listens to our uh, listens to our podcast. Although Bernie's not doing much else these days, so you know, hate to see it. <laughs> there was a couple of months ago. There was a, a job posted to be Alex Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez's assistant at A Rod Corp, and you said that you were going to apply. Did you apply? I never applied, and I'm. I hope. I know. This is worse than that time you left your your glove at the A's stadium. I'm more disappointed (laughs) in you now than I was then. real deep cut. (laughs) Because you could have played it for him then. We could have guaranteed our our victory there. Like if you were were in charge of, I don't know, holding the microphone, like holding the boom for this video, you could have just been like tipping pitches. While you were talking, I looked to see if a-Rod Corp was still hiring, and unfortunately, they're not because I really wanted to to join A-Rod's real estate investment internship program. I'm sure they'd pay well. They definitely would. 50-50 rev split between A-Rod and his interns. Like, how many unionize A-Rod's interns? That's the long con here. Forget unionizing the minor leagues. <laughs> Let's unionize A-Rod Corp. Okay, should we, talk, should we go from one goon to another goon? Alex. Please. Please. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred said last week, the reality is we weren't going to play more than 60 games no matter how the negotiations with the players went. Can you tell me what that sounds like to you? There's a certain phrase I'm looking for. Um, Starts with bad and ends in faith negotiations. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go with um, collusion, which I feel like we don't talk about much uh, these days, but it does kind of feel like they they had a plan for this, and they were yeah they were really just playing with the with the players the whole time. So he walked this statement back, and he said that he was referring to the fact that the virus was getting worse, and that it would have been very hard to safely play more than sixty games, oh, even right. if they came to a better agreement or or a, an agreement that played more than sixty, they would have only ended up playing sixty because of the virus. That was his walk back. Alex, do you believe Rob Manfred when he says that that's what he meant? That he was concerned about the second wave of the virus? You know, frankly, I think we don't believe Rob Manfred enough. I think that's the, that is the lesson that we should take from, from the last six months is believe Rob Manfred. So, uh, so yeah, of course. No, I think he was, I definitely think that he wasn't just saying the quiet part out loud and, um, he was probably operating in good faith this whole time. And he was really, I mean, ultimately, he was looking out for the safety of the players, which shows because they're not having a baseball. Um, wait, actually, mm, no, I don't, I don't know that I can say that one. I don't know about that. Well, you and I believed Rob Manfred when he said that Jim Crane had nothing to do with the sign-stealing scan. No, wait, no, we didn't mm, believe him yeah, then either. No, we didn't believe him then either. Yeah. We also took him at his word when he was saying that the Yankees and Red Sox were not going to be punished or involved in anything right yeah i don't yeah i don't think that happened either yeah Hmm. 
Interesting. Okay. Well, we're going to get back to you with some examples on on why maybe we should believe Rob Manfred. Um, we might have to do some searching for it, but I promise you there's got to be at least one. Out maybe there. two? Maybe two. <laughs> oh, me defending Rob Manfred two weeks ago on this podcast is looking dumber and dumber by the hour. <laughs> Come on, Rob. I tried to get behind you and blame the owners. You're making me look bad. Uh, okay, last thing before we talk to June Lee, who was who's great to talk to, and I hope that you'll stick around and listen to that whole thing because June's piece illuminates some of the largest problems that are happening in baseball right now and a lot of the things that we talk about in that Ivy League, or MLB's association with the Ivy Leagues has led to not diverse hiring practices, has led to this Wall Street mentality that allows clubs and owners to operate how they've always wanted to, which is in the cutthroat capitalist way. So it was a really good conversation with June. Um, last thing I want to mention before we go to that conversation, Alex, is the incredibly powerful statement from Ian Desmond of the Colorado Rockies on why he's going to sit out this season, um, both because he doesn't feel it's necessarily safe and the most important thing right now, but primarily because he feels like in the global moment that we're having around police brutality and systemic racism against black people that it's just not right to be playing baseball right now. And he shared a lot of very personal stories from his childhood growing up and being mixed race in baseball and what that meant for him in terms of his player development and how he views the world of baseball right now and how it treats black players, how it treats just all non-white players, but black players specifically and everything he said shines such a such a bright spotlight on baseball's accessibility problem, which is a phrase that we toss around a lot on this podcast without necessarily always putting a face to the name. And I think if you listen to our show and you felt like baseball accessibility is a big problem for the sport going forward and currently, then I, I hope that you've read Ian Desmond's statement and thought a lot about why we should or shouldn't be playing baseball in 2020. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, it was covered as basically being, this is Ian Desmond's statement on, on why he's not playing baseball this year. But it, I think that really does a disservice to his words because it's, it was obviously so much more than that. I mean, you can go to his Instagram right now and we'll, and we'll put the link in the description. Um, But it is, you know, eight or, or nine pages, eight or nine slides of a statement. And the last one is really, you know, I'm not going to be playing baseball this year because there's a pandemic and I have a family to take care of and it's not safe. And I think I can be doing a lot better for uh, my community, but it's those first seven or eight slides that really, I think, illuminate a lot of the issues that baseball is reckoning with right now. And that class divide that separates the, the, the white well-off kids who are able to play baseball from the the black kids who come from a uh, a disadvantaged background. He comes he he brings up an example of a kid who he got to know at the at the Nationals like youth baseball summer camp. And he notices, he says this is a kid who's never had this opportunity and literally the only thing separating my kids from him is money. And it's something that is, I think, recognized, but so rarely spoken about. It's just like, like Ian Desmond said, baseball has a class issue. 
straight up. That's, and he's exactly right. And I think it's worth engaging with him on a deeper fundamental level and also noticing that whether or not there was going to be baseball played during a pandemic this year, these are conversations that have to be happening and they have to happen next year too and the year after and the year after that. Um, and we don't really talk about this with June so much, but we we do get to it a little bit on just the, the ways in which baseball has to has to open up those pathways, both to people who want to work in the front office, but also people who just who just want to play baseball. That should be the the thing that we're all striving to do is to open those doors for anyone who wants to play and provide these opportunities for people to exist in in this sort of environment, in this system and thrive in it. I think it can feel repetitive the way that we talk about this and the way that we say baseball has a class issue, baseball has an accessibility issue. But like the, the reason that we have to keep coming back to it is because it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Every year that perfect game continues to exist, it's getting worse. Every year that travel ball continues to be the predominant way that we seek and sort talent among youth baseball, it's getting worse. Every year that we decide you have to go to a showcase in order for you to be put on a scout's radar, it's getting worse. And as we talk about the way that baseball front offices are developing and going more towards quant and getting rid of scouts and getting rid of hiring more people and trying to hire less people and let the numbers do the work because you don't have to pay the numbers. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay Excel and you don't have to cover health benefits for Excel. As we talk about that, there is an inextricable link between these things because a scout is the person that finds someone who wouldn't have been found otherwise, not a data spreadsheet that was taken using data from a perfect game showcase like that is just going to continue to perpetuate all of these same issues and these same stereotypes about younger players and you know there's a lot of there's been a lot of really good writing better than we could ever do justice in the short amount of time before we before we go talk to june about the way that algorithms have built-in biases based on who wrote the algorithm and it's so unfortunate that the thing that we love, which is a sport that is like so simple when you think about it in its in its base in this most base form, has now been kind of corrupted by all of these larger factors that we talk about a lot on the show. And Ian Desmond put it unbelievably well in his Instagram post. And I just hope that baseball players are continuing to feel empowered to speak about these things the way that they have in the past, the way that Ian Desmond was, and that more people listen in an earnest way because, because players have been complaining about these things for a long time. Like the, the, the league has been trending to be more and more white for a while now, and it's been identified, and they haven't done anything about it. So I don't know. I'm at least hopeful that the amount of support that Ian Desmond got from his fellow players online and from a lot of the media folks that we follow online as well. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that the league actually engages with, with his words in a meaningful way beyond just retweeting it or dropping a heart emoji in the comments. 
because yeah. that because it's not Rob Manfred running the Twitter account. You know, it's yeah. not the people with the power running the Twitter account. I mean, shout out to all those people who are just trying to do their job and everything, but like, it doesn't actually change anything. Yeah. So, uh, on that note, talking about uh, talking about change in baseball, should we get to our conversation with June? Yes. Let's go talk to June Lee, staff writer at ESPN. another guest i feel like we get in these stretches where we we have multiple guests because we remember that it's a thing we can do and we can like get out of our little echo chamber where we yell at baseball owners so today we are lucky enough to be joined by june lee staff writer at espn june thanks so much for joining the show thanks for having me on guys i appreciate it june you uh your most recent article i i don't know if it's actually your most recent byline but your pinned tweet article which is maybe a more important thing than the most recent one (laughs) is inside the rise of mlb's ivy league culture Um, we wanted to have you on to talk about this article because this is something that's come up on our show a lot over the last year. And I think a lot around the Astros sign stealing scandal, a lot around baseball's homogeneity in front offices and even on the field now. So it's like right in the line of things that we wanted to talk about. But I wanted to ask you to start out, you know, you're obviously a baseball reporter, you're a baseball writer, you're around these conversations a lot. So you probably went into this article with an expectation about what you might find. I wanted to ask you, what were you most surprised about and how, what, what were the differences between what you expected and what you actually came out understanding? I'm going to be honest. I wasn't surprised by anything I reported. <laughs> uh, this, is, this, is, this is a conversation that I've been having. You know, I, I started, I started, uh, I, I started Bleach Report as a, as a writer out of college in 2017. And literally almost, you know, when, when I go to the ballpark and you talk to anyone who's a minority, uh, a relatively woke white dude or a woman, this is the conversation that you have. It's, it's, it's a thing that kind of culturally affects every part of the game in a way, in like a very subtle way on a day-to-day basis and obviously kind of on the big picture strategy uh, method on, on the whole. And so you know, when I went into the story, you know, this is a, I think this is a topic that has popped up, but I think it hasn't really been quantified, which is why I, I went in and did the number work. Um, and kind of went into an Excel spreadsheet to see exactly what percentage of uh, Ivy Leaguers were running teams now versus 2001, which is pre-Theo Epstein. And uh, and so once I kind of saw the numbers, and I, I basically just went to the folks that I've been having these kinds of conversations with over the course of the last couple of years, uh, and you know what they said was not surprising to me because this is a, a thing that I think is true not even just in baseball, but across the American workforce. Like, I don't think this is necessarily even just a, uh, just a baseball problem. This is a, a thing where I think hiring practice in general in America are kind of treated in, in, in this kind of manner. So you mentioned something uh, that, that perked my ears a little bit, which is pre-Theo Epstein, pre-2001, pre-Theo Epstein. So we wanted to ask you also, what was your catalyst for writing this, this story right now? So this is a story that I was hoping to write at the beginning of the baseball season and the pandemic happened. So I kind of put it on a back burner. Um, and I was thinking, you know, if the baseball season happened, maybe the off season could be a good time to run the story just because, you know, at, at, during a time where, where folks are talking and thinking about big picture baseball issues, uh, what 
set off me being able to write the story now was Theo saying those quotes about a month ago about how he was revisiting his hiring practices. And Theo is a central figure in all of this because he's the catalyst for this cultural change happening. His, 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 uh, his success in Boston in 2004, you know, getting the Red Sox a World Series championship for the first time in 86 years, that was the thing that enabled other owners to justify hiring someone like John Daniels in Texas or Andrew Friedman in Tampa Bay. And their subsequent success helped enable you know, this entire flood that has come after that. And so Theo, in many ways, I think is, is an incredibly important person just kind of looking at the state of the game right now. But is also an incredibly important person because you know, he's, he's someone who has had an, a tremendous amount of success at a, at a young age, you know, is, is a Hall of Famer before he turns 50. Uh, and uh, and is so emblematic of a lot of the trends that has ha- that have happened. So to to hear Theo Epstein, who's one of the most powerful executive voices in baseball, when Theo says something, you know, it matters. Uh, to hear him kind of acknowledge his own faults in his hiring practices, uh, you know, it's kind of emblematic of what the mindset of a lot of different people across the sport. And so that was kind of the catalyst for me being like, I think this is the moment to run it because obviously, given everything that's happening in our country right now. Uh, these kinds of discussions, these kinds of difficult discussions, are happening not just in newsrooms, but you know, other workforces across America. Maybe it's just because I am uh, incredibly jaded at this point. I mean, you know, as a millennial, how could you not be? Um, but I, I feel very, um, I think, cynical when a lot of these conversations come up because it's hard to discern whether or not they are they are something that someone like Theo Epstein or a GM wants to be talking about or or if they just feel like they they have to be talking about you know like and, and you mentioned in this story that so much of uh so much of what GMs feel like what front offices feel like they have to do is perform PR right and and be like pretend like they are on the the cutting edge of everything I mean we we're recording this on the day that the Washington football team announced that they're quote unquote reevaluating their team name which Whatever that means, you know, it took weeks of protests to make that happen. So, do you get the sense that these are real conversations that front offices want to be having, or is it just kind of, I guess, lip service? So, I, I've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of different places over the course of the last couple of days, and generally, the feedback that I've heard from people running baseball teams, like the highest executives running baseball teams, is that these are conversations that have been had for the last couple of years. It's something that people have noticed. But it's also been a thing where it's been an abstract thing and not an urgent problem to have to address. And I think literally just putting what is happening out there has, has prompted a conversation on a lot of different front offices. I've heard from a lot of NL teams, a lot of AL teams, people up and down the power hierarchy within these organizations who are saying that these, this story was getting emailed around or, you know, within front offices and it's prompting a discussion. And on top of all of that, I heard from the commissioner's office as well. And so... This is they and, and the commissioner's office, you know, acknowledge that this kind of stuff is happening. I think, you know, of course, as a, as a lot of minorities and women around the sport, I think already have the very cynical mindset of you know you see it, I'll believe it when I see it, right? I, I'm I'm personally still in that camp too, um, but the power brokers of baseball are having this discussion right now, and they're acknowledging the problems, and they're and they're thinking about it, uh, and and. It's. I think baseball is is at a point where they realize with this issue in particular that, you know, when you talk about diversity within baseball, you can talk about you can, you can put out a statement on social media, right? Put, posting about how Black Lives Matter, and you know, every almost you know every single corporate organization has done that at this point. Um, 
you can you can donate money, right? That's that's kind of been the go-to for a lot of teams over the course of the last 10, 15 years to kind of push away an issue to a certain degree uh, or, or kind of pad the PR around an issue. Uh, and I think I think teams are realizing that you can't really do that with this right now. This is a different time. Um, and there's so many changes happening in our country that I think it's really hard for us in this moment right now to kind of grasp socially what's happening because... You know, we're seeing. I, I I'm seeing changes within my own small, you know, day to day social circle. I don't know if you guys are, but uh, it's it's something that is clearly on the minds of a lot of people, and it's hard to kind of grasp this kind of large scale cultural shift that I think is happening. I can't say for certain because we're still in the middle of it, right? But I think there is some sort of cultural shift happening where there is a mindset where you know you're seeing much more support of the Black Lives Matter movement than you have in the last couple of years. If you just look at the polling, right? And that's, that's, that's something, you know, that is something people are awakening to a lot of these kind of endemic day to day micro, like the fact that people are talking about microaggressions in mainstream media is crazy to me. And that, that for me represents a, 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 a definitive cultural shift, whether or not that'll actually manifest itself in big scale changes is remains to be seen. So baseball's reputation and all sports reputation really is that, um, you know, people involved in the game don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to talk about X, Y, Z thing. They don't want to talk about, they don't want to have the hard conversations that are not about like player development or whatever. So on a scale of, you know, one to, I guess, like Marshawn Lynch at a press conference, how hard was it to get people to talk? Uh, it was, well, I mean, I gave, I gave people the condition of anonymity and, you know, I knew that everyone who would talk in the story had clearly thought about this in depth for, not even just months, but years, you know, this is a, yeah. a problem that's kind of been happening for such a long time. And so, uh, it wasn't that hard to get people to talk because this is the thing that all of them, like the shadow, the whisper network of minorities and women in baseball. That's that it's, it's the primary thing we talked about at the last three winter meetings, every single time the last three winter meetings, it was the, it was the main conversation that I had was the, was the demographics of the front office, how players feel like they're being treated like financial assets more than people. Uh, on a way higher rate than it has been in the past. Uh, this is all stuff that has been very, very uh, current and present in the lives of many people. And I, honestly, I simply just gave, turned on the recorder and gave them a voice and transcribed their quotes and, and you know, formulated it into a story. There was a, there was a quote in there in your article that really stood out to me. It's from uh, Chicago White Sox Vice President Ken Williams. Um, and he says, uh, the natural assumption is that it's a racial problem and it's easy to jump to that, but there's much more to it. The Ivy League educated, analytically based, PowerPoint savvy individuals are being hired because they speak the same language as ownership groups. They're hiring people in the limited circle that are new to the industry because they can relate to them. And that really jumped out to me, especially because... Uh, of the, I guess, the labor climate that we're in right now. Um, we're seeing players treated more and more like assets, like, like numbers on a spreadsheet. Um, and the, the idea of uh, white men being the the head of the front office, I think is nothing new. It's like all of a sudden they're just kind of bringing in smarter people to, who know how to like wring that value out of humans, honestly. Um, how often did that sort of thing, I guess, come up in your, uh, in your conversations? And do you think that, I guess, that has reached a, a head? Like, people are talking more and more about the, like, dehumanization of baseball players. So, like, I guess, 
what what now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is. I think that this has been a co- topic of conversation that I've had with players, uh, with agents, um, and and just people around the game, scouts. This is a. It's it's the Wall Street culture seeping into uh, baseball in every single way, where everyone is a number on the page, regardless of who you are. Uh, and I think that's had a dramatic effect on the cultural state of the game as well. I mean, we've seen in just the negotiations between the players and the league over the course of the last couple of months, uh, just this inherent, this this very deep rooted level of distrust between the two sides, and. I think it all. I, I really, truly think a lot of it stems from this cultural shift in how players are treated by front offices and how they're viewed as assets in, by front offices. It's something that I hear regularly from players. You know, it's you know, I, I think I think baseball as a sport has kind of drifted away from the storytelling element, the narratives. You know, if you look at the NBA, there's always some sort of soap operatic narrative happening that that fans can attach to in the most casual possible way. And baseball doesn't have any of that anymore. It was I think it existed in the 2000s with the Red Sox and the Yankees and and a lot of other, you know, rivalries and and stars, you know, A-Rod Jeter the entire steroid era, right? We haven't really had that in the 2010s. We didn't really have any, you know, memorable rivalries or or anything like that. And we don't have a face of there's not really a mainstream face of baseball. You know, I think it stems back to the fact that Alex Rodriguez is still the most famous baseball player in the world, and he hasn't played in years. Obviously, he's on television, but you know him and Derek Jeter are two of the most famous celebrities. I, I bring up this point all the time, but uh, you know Derek Jeter was a private guy, right? In terms of the grand scheme of sports celebrities, he still hosted Saturday Night Live, and I can't imagine one baseball player today being remotely famous enough to host SNL. And I think that kind of speaks to the general state of where players feel like they are, where their power has kind of been taken away from them because, you know, we're these 30 something year old players aren't getting these enormous contracts anymore because, you know, teams have realized that it's a bad financial decision and, and they're going for younger and cheaper guys. And that's completely devalued uh, the value of the veteran baseball player because, you know, someone like Howie Kendrick is, is kind of an anomaly in, in today's game where he's 30-something, plays multiple positions, and is still getting contracts. There's not many players like Howie Kendrick in baseball today, which is a bizarre state of baseball. You know, those guys have been a part of baseball for the sport's entire history. I think there's a decent case to be made that steroids and the resulting scandal actually did more to boost interest in the sport than honestly anything that has come out of the last few years, including Mike Trout, who is the greatest baseball human to ever walk the earth, right? Because there was like, like you're saying, there's that storyline. There's actually, you can take a stance on, on it. You can say Barry Bonds is great or he's the worst, but you're going to tune in and you're going to watch his at bats because no matter what, it's, it's entertainment at the end of the day. Right. And I also think that that shift has been reflected in the media coverage of the sport too. We see there's obviously just way more analytics writers than there happened in the past. And I think a lot of the coverage has shifted in terms of you know, f- not necessarily favoring the owners, but from the perspective of the owners, like there's a lot more justification of not giving out big, big contracts, you know, letting, you know, going with cheaper, younger guys. And I think that that ownership mentality has kind of permeated into the coverage of the sport uh, as well. And, and there's, as a result, there's just less storytelling. There's less narrative around who these guys are in the first place, how they got here. Um, and I think that that's had a massive effect on just affecting the growth of baseball because there aren't narratives to grasp onto for a casual fan. So Theo, you know, came to fame early 2000s. He's obviously a baseball legend, bringing a title to the Red Sox. 
and the Cubs. You mentioned that there's a lot more writers in the media right now who are covering it from a quantitative perspective. I'm wondering, from your perspective, being in the media, having reported out a story like this, do you think we've reached peak quant? Do you think we've reached peak Ivy Leaguer? Or do we still have more to come on this trend? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I wrote the story because I wanted people to kind of get a sense of what has been happening. But it's ultimately up to the owners, right? They're the ones who are hiring. Uh, well, hiring I feel like people. I'm in good hands then. <laughs> <laughs> it's ultimately up to the owners to make a change. You know, I heard, I heard a story from a, a reporter who, who texted me about, uh, about after the story came up and he had a, an older former general manager who's suddenly questioning the entire hiring system of baseball. Like, this is a, this is a, you know, a former executive or, or current executive who has been in the game for decades on decades on decades. And this story I heard made him question the entire hiring system of baseball. So I think it's kind of too early to say because um, obviously we've seen a lot of analytics, but you know, inevitably some of these analytically minded GMs, you know, every team can't win the World Series. So some of these guys are going to fail and lose their jobs. And We'll see what the hires look like after that. It's, I think it's a little too early to say at this point. But I, I know for a fact that there's a lot of people who've been in baseball for a long time who are now thinking about this issue from a critical lens because of everything that's happening in our country. What you're saying is that you're, you're an influencer inside major league <laughs> front offices. I think that's what I'm, what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in if you talked with people at all about um, y- your story focuses a lot on like top level executives. Um, but on the other side of that, there's a real um, accessibility issue when it comes to entry level uh, jobs in baseball, just because they pay so little. Um, I, you know, like th- three years ago, two years ago, like interviewed for some like entry level like baseball operations job uh here in new york and i was and like they listened this to is... the podcast once and they were like we don't want this yeah, guy anywhere near front office. <laughs> <laughs> no but you know it's the kind of thing where it's like so we're gonna pay you uh you know eight thousand dollars for the summer for the next like six months and i'm like you know i live in new york right um and it totally leads to this i think funneling of um, a very specific type of person who can actually cut their teeth in baseball. Was that something that came up in your conversations at all? Right. I, I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the symptom of, of the, the kind of homogenous hiring practices at the top, because, you know, MLB has made waves in the last couple of years and a definite, definite push internally to increase the diversity of its executive level. I, I mentioned the diversity fellowship in the story. They, they have taken steps to try to alleviate some of these concerns, but also it's a reality of the situation where if you're not paying the entry-level jobs, there's just from a pure math standpoint, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for someone who's not a well-off person financially to take these jobs. And um, if you just look at the math of the country, the demographics of who's well-off definitely skews towards white people uh, as we're learning in the, you know, just given everything that's happening in our country right now. So that, that is, that is ultimately, I think the biggest problem in baseball's executive problem is that the entry level jobs are just inaccessible from a financial standpoint, from an education standpoint. It, like this isn't just a race issue, right? It's, it, it has so many different little elements to it that kind of funnel into a larger kind of big systemic issue within baseball. What are, 
So, so this is a hard question, and I, I you obviously have. A We've been last... tossing you softballs so far, <laughs> so get ready. <laughs> so, you obviously the last subheader of your piece is what now or what's next. Um, what are some of those ways out that have been thrown out, and and what are the ones that maybe have legs, and what are some of the more radical ones, and what are some of the more conservative ones? You know, because like I. I think about how you could fix it from an entry-level perspective, but that would obviously take 10, 20 years to fix at this point because those people need to pave that career path for themselves. So I'm just curious to, as to what it looks like in a baseball-specific market because obviously media is having a lot of these reckonings as well. And you know, I, I don't think any industry is really a stranger to these conversations, but the solutions might look different for baseball just because they are such exclusive jobs. Yeah, I think it's a problem that's not going to get fixed immediately. Like. We're not going to wake up next year in 2021 and suddenly see like 50% minority executives. Like, I just, I don't think that's a realistic possibility, but I think it's something that I hope teams start to think about now when they're hiring and promoting people, right? And, and who they're giving opportunities to and just the general cultural day to day environment of the office and who feels comfortable in speaking out and, you know, challenging uh, the dominant thought in an office. Uh, I think that's a, it's, a, it's an issue where, I think the diversity fellowship is a start, right? Like you're getting through that program. If you just look at the alumni of the program and, it, and they're available online, um, you see folks from a wide variety of colleges for the most part, both private and public. You know, you get the Ivy Leaguers, but there's also they're also pulling from public schools and they're also pulling from smaller schools. And they're also pulling from HBCUs. Like, I think that is a start, but that is an attitude that needs to kind of take form around baseball. You know, I was talking to someone who works for an American League team yesterday and I think a part of it comes down to just, and it's mentioned in the story, just recruiting people, being pro, teams being proactive in seeking out uh, minorities, women, uh, and showing them that a career in the sport is possible in the first place. Showing them that this is an option and also just helping guide students through their college course courses like if you want to pursue a career in sports you know here are the courses that you need to take in order to be qualified for these jobs showing them the route because uh, it's not just about it's not just about hiring these people it's, it's also showing that the, this is a career that's possible and helping guide them through the process because you know as you said this is an ex- uh, sports in general is, and in entertainment is is an exclusive industry and you really need to kind of know how to navigate all of it. And a lot of minorities, especially in baseball, just don't know how to navigate both the, the steps, the little baby steps to get to, to be qualified for a job and also navigating the politics once you're, once you're in the sport. Yeah, the networking is such a, it's such a large bar to clear for so many people. I, I loved when, um, when you were mentioning the, the alumni of that program and you were, or the alumna of the program and you were, um, you said, Looking at their LinkedIn, we can tell how many people are still working for baseball teams. I love that like small little window into the reporting. I'm just imagining like you and your editors like double checking their LinkedIn to check that they haven't changed since you finalized the last version of the story. That was funny. Yeah, I, I did. That was like honestly one of the last little lines I added into the story. So that was like a two days before maybe like a thing where I was just like scrolling through all the LinkedIn's because it, it was just a good thing to to mention. Reporters, they're creeping on people's LinkedIn's just like us. <laughs> Dude, reporting is just internet stalking and googling people. Like it's it's there's so I like a, a lot of the best reporters are just really really good at internet stalking people. Seriously, I am <laughs> um, really interested in the ways in which there's a lot of I think unlearning that needs to be done in terms of the way we talk about players. Um, Joe Adele. Angels, mega 
future mega superstar um, came out a, a couple of weeks ago and basically said, you know, racial bias clearly shades the way in which we talk about young players, right? And um, and using raw and and toolsy to describe black players and and like high IQ or, or low risk to describe white players. And I think never, first of all, never so clearly has that thing sort of been laid out and it's really shameful that it took a, a young burgeoning black star to actually say those words um but i do think there's a lot of like reckoning that's going to be coming in the coming weeks and and months and and years um rob arthur at baseball prospectus even i think he did a he did a piece that came out a couple days ago talking about how just racial bias affects who gets promoted, right? Like if you're a white player, you're just more likely to move up. Um, how do you think we're going to like see that shift play out on the field in the language? Do you think that like that's something that's going to take years of unlearning to do? Or is it just kind of a, a self-reckoning that people are just going to have to sit with? Well, I think, well, I think there's just the fact that it's out there now means that there's going to be discussion about it. And it means that people are going to feel empowered to call things out when they think it's bullshit for the most part. You know, um, I, I think I was, I was also very, very impressed by Joe Adele's post. And there's, a, there's another story uh, that Alex Spear from the Boston Globe, who's I think one of the best baseball writers in the country, he wrote a great story about just the, the microaggressions and the code words. Uh, and then there was also a really good story from Julian McWilliams, also in the Boston Globe about uh, navigating a minor league Students clubhouse as a black player. <laughs> I am from I am from Boston, so I do have a Boston bias here. Um, <laughs> but both of those stories, I thought, were two of the best stories written about kind of this whole reckoning that's happening in terms of language and how how players kind of go about navigating these things. I think we're at a point where you know this is all out on the table now. This is this is all a public discussion. This is no longer just the whisper network conversation that you know black players are having with minority reporters. You know, this is a thing that is now out in the public. And so I think people are going to feel more empowered to call out people when, when poor language is used or, or racially toned language uh, is used. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say because this is the first time that baseball has had to deal with these issues um, in terms of language and, and dealing with scouting biases and all this stuff. So I wish I could say how this is going to turn out. Um, you know, I think cultural change happens really, really quickly in a way that uh, is is kind of hard. It, it, like it's it's really easy to underestimate how quickly things can change. But you know, who knows? We're still all in our apartments right now. Uh, you know, dealing with a pandemic, it's really hard to say like what the world is going to look like on the other side of this. And you know, it's going to be a long time before these you know, networking conversations, the winter meetings happens again, the All Star Game happens again, where a lot of these kind of conversations uh, kind of bubble up. So uh, I wish I could say what this is going to look like and how long it'll take, but I, I have no idea. So, so June, I have a question for you about the way that they are reckoning with a part of your article, um, which you described very well, I thought, which is the way that Ivy League culture contributes towards the Wall Streetization of baseball um, and how that might play out in other ways, not just uh, race-based hiring practices that are not good enough, but if you look back in just the last calendar year, the Houston Astros scandal is a Wall Street scandal. It happened in the exact same way that an insider trading scandal might happen. It happened in the exact same way that you know unfair labor practices happen or, or whatever it might be. And so I'm wondering, do you get a sense that there is any self-awareness about those types of scandals, those types of 
you know, like what the Dodgers did internationally um, with uh, unfair hiring practices with, you know, with their minor leaguers. Is there any self-awareness about how their Wall Street and Ivy League culture is affecting those things, not just the lack of diverse candidates in their organization? I'm not completely sure about that, to be honest. Uh, I think that I'm hoping that my article kind of like illuminates that to some people because I think it's something... The Wall Street thing is something I've heard constantly over the course of the last couple of years. And honestly, I, I graduated from, from Cornell. Like I saw a lot of my classmates in that Wall Street mentality uh, who were pursuing kind of the big money jobs post-college to you know, go into finance. Uh, and I saw a lot of, you know, you, you see that mentality just kind of play out on the baseball field. And it's just, it, it was very, very eye-opening to me. So, you know, I, I think you're 100% spot on where, you know, the sign ceiling scandal, that's all, that's ultimately kind of a Wall Street type scandal. You know, it's, it's kind of, it comes from the exact same mindset and mentality. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to imagine that kind of scan, that kind of very, Technical specific sign stealing scandal pop up like, uh, and obviously the technology has changed, but popping up even ten years ago, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, you you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, baseball isn't as storyline driven anymore, and a lot of journalists kind of don't take that um, approach to writing about the game. Fans don't take that approach to talking about the game. Um, dream story that that you can you can write about right now. What do you what do you think that is without tipping your hand too much at whatever you're you're currently working on right now? But but is there a storyline or two that's really fascinating to you in baseball right now that you want to explore further? I think the continued reckoning with the unwritten rules is one of the most important storylines in baseball right now because I think it is as we've I think people have been talking about right now is very much a code for like the white the whiteness of baseball governing what is good and what what is considered good and what is considered bad and I think it's going to be extremely hard for baseball moving forward to deal with these issues of race without kind of talking about the unwritten rules and what it does to anyone who's not a white person you know I think Tim Anderson's bat flip last year was so emblematic of so many different uh, cultural hot button issues within the sport right now. Uh, because you know Tim is obviously black; he's unapologetically black uh, in in kind of a, in a very authentic way that I think is not common for baseball players. Uh, Tim is very much himself. He's a dude from Alabama, and you know didn't didn't kind of grow up following the unwritten rule culture of the sport, and so. He's kind of this like cultural anarchist in, in a, way, a lot of ways, and so when he bat flipped, and then the reaction, you know, afterwards was like, "Yeah, I bat flipped," and like, you know, what are you going to do about it? Uh, it it really pissed off a lot of establishment baseball people, whether it's people in the media or people in front offices uh, or just general fans, right? Like the people who've watched the game a certain way for a long time, and I think that that cultural issue is tied into so many other different cultural race issues. You know, the Ivy League issue, I think it's all tied together. And, and why the sport has struggled to, to, to attract younger black fans and just black players in general. You know, if we've seen the course of the last two decades that the percentage of black players fall uh, almost 6%. Yeah, we, I mean, we talk on... A, a running inside joke on this podcast is that we just want baseball to kind of become basketball. And like, you, you don't get there without following along with the deletion of unwritten rules because comparatively if you if you put those two sports side by side there are so many fewer 
unwritten rules in basketball than in baseball. There's just no you unwritten just do rules in basketball. Yeah, exactly. Right. You just like, do whatever the hell you want. The three-point celebrations, the guns that like all of the, you know, making someone fall and laughing at them. Like if you did any of that in baseball, you're getting a 98 mile an hour fastball. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. And in NBA, <laughs> in the NBA, like James Harden can stare down a dude he crossed over for like three seconds and, and hit a three. And that's like, you know, that'll get posted on Instagram. You know, the way that the two, as an enormous basketball fan, like the way that those two sports treat those kinds of moments of, of people showing their character, people showing personality are just so dramatically different. And I think it's very emblematic of just the massive, you know, the massive cultural difference between baseball and basketball. People handle pettiness in the NBA and they think it's all in good fun. It's almost like a circus. Right. And people right. handle it's all part of what the soap would opera. be petti- pettiness in baseball with legitimate anger and uh, sometimes very racially tinged anger. Um, and so, yeah, you know. Also, the pettiness can manifest itself to, with a fastball to the, you know, to the head, you know, yes. like it's just different. Yeah, if that is not petty, what is honestly? Yeah, we um a few days ago we we chatted with Emma Yamazaki, um, who directed Koshien, which just aired on ESPN, um, and it was really interesting hearing the the way that baseball in Japan kind of deals with that cultural tension, um, because it obviously is very deeply rooted in tradition. Um, and there's a really interesting conversation happening there right now about, um, reverence for the game and it being this very like sacred place versus these are young kids who are growing up. And so maybe we don't have them shave their head, uh, uniformly, right? Because we can't explain that. And we were joking <laughs> and we were joking that. Baseball should take the exact same approach. If you can't explain why a tradition should exist, then maybe get rid of the tradition. <laughs> maybe maybe it shouldn't. Right. Just I think that's a conversation that applies across so many different American traditions. Right. Like just because it's been that way for a long time doesn't mean it has. It should continue being that way. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. We don't we don't do a very good job of um, explaining our traditions here in America and why they should still exist, especially yes. in baseball. Yeah. Um, all right, June, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the show. Um, do you want to let people know where they can find more of your work? What else you're working on? Anything you're excited about coming up? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm currently working on a basketball story that I'm very excited about. Uh, and, that, and then, uh, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at June Lee, J-O-O-N-L-E-E. And I'm also on Instagram at June. So nice. You got at June. Yeah, like getting at your first name in anything is is a very large accomplishment. Honestly, it's a great it's a great feeling. I can't I can't <laughs> lie about that. This is this is where your your burgeoning influencer career starts. Like into, it starts with the story, and then you just you take it to Instagram. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you to June. Thank you to Alex Rodriguez. Thank you to A-Rod Corp. Thank you to Alex Baisley, number two Alex, on today's episode of Tipping Pitches. Tipping Pitches. Uh, Brutal stuff. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening to last week's double episode week, if you did. If you didn't, um, I really encourage you to go listen to our conversation with Emma Yamazaki, who created Koshien. Um, I know Alex mentioned it in our conversation with June, but it's just so... It's so pertinent to thinking critically about the game of baseball wherever it's being played, especially as it relates to American baseball, baseball in the United States. 
So go check that out if you have the extra time and we will be back in a week. Anything else that you need to leave the listeners with, Alex? No, but if you have a a favorite way in which pitchers tip their pitches, tipping pitches, please, uh, please let us know. I know Bobby and I have our own favorites, but you know, we want to hear from, from you, the listener. If you have a a lot of ranked choices, by all means. I think we're going to get a lot of um, just being on camera against the Astros submissions. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everyone. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. So we'll see you next week. See ya!